right, good morning, beloved. I want to invite you to open your Bibles and turn with me to the book of 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. This morning we'll be covering verses 18 to 21, but we're going to be working around a little bit, and I do want to start in verse 17 just to um, pull in the context of that verse. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17. Here now is the word of the living and true God. If you address as far the Father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from the futile ways of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him as believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. One of my um, favorite words in all the Bible is listed there in verse 18. It's the word redeemed. Redeemed. That's the key word in this passage. And um, we really don't use that word all that often. Redeemed. Redemption. It's a wonderful word. It's a term that describes one of the essential features of our salvation. Salvation is a term that looks at the whole saving work of God. While redemption deals specifically with the cost of salvation and the means by which salvation is achieved. For example... Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. We like to say, after all, it's in Scripture that salvation is a free gift of God. And that is true, but there was a price involved, this steep, steep price. Jesus himself said in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, that he came to give his life as a ransom for many. A ransom. And so redemption focuses on how God bought us back to himself. He twice owns you. He created you. He purchased you back. Redemption shows man in bondage in a hopeless condition from which he must be delivered. Romans 6 says we are slaves to sin. And redemption shows how God paid the price to purchase that deliverance. The word used for redeemed, lutro means, or trao, I think it's better pronounced, actually means to purchase one's release 
by paying a ransom. And that's what's in Peter's heart here in verses 18 and 19. As he says, You were not redeemed with perishable things, like silver and gold, but with the precious blood, the blood of Christ. That is the price of our redemption. Now the imagery shadowing Peter's words here come straight out of Exodus chapter 12 and the Lord's first Passover. If you want to turn there for a moment, you'll recall this is a section of scripture where God's people were enslaved to the Pharaoh in Egypt. And after uh, more than 400 years of slavery, God sent Moses and Aaron to confront Aaron and to demand to let my people go. And you know the story, Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he refused and so God unleashed upon Egypt a series of ten plagues uh, culminating in this final plague which was the supernatural execution of every firstborn child and beast. And in order for the Hebrew people to be spared in this divine judgment, God instructs them with these commands that are found in Exodus chapter 12. Let me read these verses to you so we can better understand what Peter is referring to in our text, as he certainly has this in mind. You'll see once we read the text. It says, starting in verse 1, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of the months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat. In other words, you would determine it by how many people were in your household. If you were to have a small household um, and couldn't consume the whole lamb yourselves, um, you would have your neighbor come and join you, and the two smaller families would feast together. And then in verse 5, he outlines how they were to choose the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male and a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. And before we continue on, I want you to notice that this lamb becomes very precious to them. He essentially goes from being an outdoor animal into more of a, a family pet. They're instructed to care for it, to keep it. It means they'll keep the lamb likely inside with them for 14 days before he's killed. This would, in fact, teach even the little children what, in fact, sacrifice is. After caring for a lamb for 14 days, a, a family would certainly become very special. The lamb would become special to the family, certainly to the children. I'm sure they played with him. They probably named him after 14 days. He's a precious lamb. He's carefully chosen, you see, and he's protected. He's the very best of the lambs. We must understand what sacrifice entailed. And then they were to kill it on the 14th day at twilight. Then, verse 7, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they were to eat it. 
And they shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, or we saw last week it could be translated girded, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, and you shall eat in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. And the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This Passover event immediately became the symbol of substitutionary atonement. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. In Exodus 12, the lamb's life was the price required to spare the life of the firstborn. That was the price to pay. The lamb took the firstborn's place and its sacrifice pictured the sacrificial death of an innocent substitute that redeemed those who were in bondage. And I can only imagine after those fathers had sacrificed that innocent lamb, knowing their firstborn's life was at stake, they drained every last drop from that lamb as he sacrificed it and drained it, poured it into the bucket and, and took a handful of the hyssop branches and, and formed a, a painting brush. And they covered that door frame in blood. No doubt, blood dripped from everywhere. In fact, I imagine that there was so much blood that it ran down from the very top of that door frame and from the marks splattered along each of its sides it pictured our future redeemer with his arms stretched out upon a blood-stained cross the great divine illustration of redemption that pointed to the ultimate lamb who would redeem his people through his own death surely this is in mind as peter writes you were not redeemed by corruptible things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. And by the way, the Jews still celebrate Passover, as many of you know, and they still celebrate it as the greatest act of God's redeeming power in Jewish history. But as great as that redemption was, it cannot be compared to the redemption of which Peter writes to here in our verses. This one infinitely surpasses the other. And by the way, is one of the reasons why we don't celebrate the Passover. For we have been redeemed from a far greater bondage, not the deliverance out of Egypt, but the deliverance as slaves to sin. And instead of a remembrance of Passover once a year, our remembrance is through communion each 
Lord's Day. And as Jesus said, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So back to our text in 1 Peter 1. Why does Peter bring up redemption here in, in verse 18? Let me help you to remember. Peter begins this epistle by launching us headfirst into the greatness of our salvation. Remember, he's writing to persecuted Christians, so he reminds them right out of the gate, you are God's elect exiles. You might not feel like the chosen of this world, but you are the chosen of God. And this God who is so rich in mercy chose you according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ to be sprinkled with his blood. Then he moves right into a description of our great salvation that goes right down through verse 12. Then starting in verse 13, which we began last week, he speaks of our response to this glorious salvation. So you have indicatives and, and statement of facts of our salvation in the first 12 verses. And then you have imperatives or commands starting in verse 13. Because you have received this great salvation, here is how you are to respond. And in verses 13 through 25, he focuses on three dimensions of our response. How we respond to God occupies the section we'll be looking at down to verse 21. How we respond to others will be verses 22 through 25. And then our own response begins in chapter 2 and will take us through verse 3. Now what did we see last week was our response to God. Number one was hope. In verse 13, set your hope fully, totally, completely on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We prepare our minds for action by being sober. That's the proper response to God's gift of salvation. We're to hope fully in our gracious God. Number two was a call to holiness. He said in verse 15, but as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. And then number three, is a call to honor God. Verse 17 tells us to conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. And that's essentially where we left off last week. Um, if in fact you address God as Father, if you do, if you are a child of God, if you've been redeemed by God, the one who impartially judges, according to each one's work, we are to conduct ourselves in fear. And that is to say in reverence, in awe and in honor of God. Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We're to have a, a healthy regard for God's hatred of sin. There's to be a healthy fear in us that honors God as holy. And we are to maintain that, he says, during the time of your stay on earth, during your uh, parika, your temporary sojourn, but what's it mean the one who impartially judges according to each one's work conduct yourselves in fear? Does it mean like in fear because he might take away my salvation? No, but he might chasten you, Hebrews 12, 6. And he might, like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, 27, disqualify you for service. 
can't lose your salvation. It's not yours to lose. But if we continue on sinning, we may be disqualified from being uh, spiritually used by God. We call that a reverent fear of God, to see God not only as our gracious Redeemer, but also as our loving Father who is both holy and just. We should have a sense of his honor and reverence before we just go running into his throne room with all of our prayerful demands. So Peter commands us, in, in light of this glorious salvation in Christ, to set your hope fully on God, to be holy as God is holy on earth, conduct yourselves with fear, reverence, and honor towards God, who judges according to each one's work. To fear God is to be conscious of his reign, not fear as of a, a tyrant. Remember, God purchased you for himself at an enormous cost. A precious cost that displays just how precious you are to him. So now in our verses 18 to 21, Peter closes this section by reminding us yet again just how precious of a salvation we have. And he does so through a theology of that word, redemption. Redemption is the key word. And he does this by answering a fourfold list of questions about redemption. We're going to see over the next two weeks, what were we redeemed from? What were we redeemed with? Who were we redeemed by? And what were we redeemed for? I'm not going to rush through these because these are all just so incredibly rich. We'll probably take two weeks anyways to go through this, but let's try to get through one of these at least today. We'll begin with just that first question there. What did God redeem believers from? What's the obvious answer to that? Sin, right? Yeah, sin. Good. Peter writes, in verse 18, we were uh, ransomed from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers. Scripture, uh, scripture certainly makes clear to us that all believers were once and born in bondage to sin and that only Christ's redemption broke that bondage. And I don't need to belabor the point because I know you understand that but I must be true to expounding this passage so let me show you some of the reminders from verses in our New Testament in Romans chapter 6 verse 6 Paul says that our old self was crucified with Christ in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Then in verse 17, he adds, But thanks be to God, that though you were slaves to sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed, and having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Scripture says over and over, we were born slaves to sin. Our old self, our body of sin, Paul calls it, needed to be crucified with Christ 
so that sin might be done away with. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, Paul says that with a slightly different view in mind, he says, Christ redeemed us not from sin, but from the curse of the law. But what curse? Well, the Old Testament says the soul that sins will what? Die. Die. That's the consequence of sin. The wages of sin is death. So Christ redeemed us from sin and the consequences of sin, which is the curse, eternal, spiritual death. Ephesians chapter 1, notice verse 7. Speaking of Christ, he says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. So again, we are reminded we are redeemed from our trespasses, which is sin. And then in the tremendous text in Titus chapter 2, verse 14, it says, He gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. The idea that we are redeemed from sin, that's the general thought with all these verses. Now, if we go back to our passage in 1 Peter, I want to point out to you four characteristics of man's bondage to sin. Four characteristics. These are, these are four sins that Peter points us to so we don't become ensnared after being delivered out from their bondage. Because if Satan can't have your soul, he wants to ruin your testimony and render you fruitless for the kingdom. That's why Hebrews 12 verse 1 says to us, Let aside, lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. So we want to lay aside every weight, every sin, which so easily ensnares us. And Peter helps us to do that as he identifies four characteristics of man's bondage to sin. We've got to start with the ugly stuff before we can truly appreciate and fully praise God for what he's redeemed us from. The first characteristic is all the way back in verse 14. But it will be helpful for us to understand what Peter's speaking to in this whole section of verses here. He says in verse 14, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts. Part of our bondage to sin is expressed in that word lust. Lust. It's the Greek word epithomia. Uh, it means a passionate longing, a strong desire, or a luring passion to do evil. In the very next chapter, Peter says, Beloved, I urge you, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. You can hear the plea in Peter's voice. He's urging the church, the dearly beloved, the bride of Christ, to live here as aliens, strangers, sojourners. We are strangers from this world. And we will not be deceived into liking 
uh, living like those who live in the world. And he's saying, don't be driven by those fleshly, carnal lusts that wage war against your soul. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. But the world, John says, is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Well, I want to look at two more verses that really explore the biblical meaning behind that word lust. The first one is in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. Genesis 6 is one of these very extraordinary chapters in all scripture. Last Sunday I was talking with Dale and uh, Dave and Garrett after uh, service, and we are just talking about God's holiness and, and man's sinfulness, and Genesis 6 came up along the way. And so um, I had to go back and relook at that this week. And while I was there, I actually discovered this. I think this is pretty fascinating. I want to share it with you. Um, the, the verse uh, I'm using here, I'm using the, the old uh, King James translation. It keeps in the word imagination. Um, the newer translations take this out, um, which usually they do a good job of, of um, translating uh, with words that help us. Um, but taking this word out, I think, actually hurts us. So um, by leaving it in, I think it sheds some additional light um, for the meaning of lust for us and, and what they were dealing with then and what we were dealing now. So just look at that verse quickly. It says in verse 5, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. God saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. And here's a definition of that wickedness. Every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That is a graphic to the point a description of the driving impulses of lust. Let me expound this for a moment. When we see the saying, the thoughts of his heart, we understand that to be our inner thinking. Some would even say that is the mind, the conscience, the voice. But we understand it generally that it means the thoughts of the heart. That's what it says there. It's whatever he's thinking about. In this case, the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. But what does it mean, every imagination of the thoughts of the heart? Your translation might say, every intention of the thoughts of the heart. Another translation says, every inclination of the thoughts of the heart. Imagination is the best word to be used here, though. Notice when reading this verse how he's adding another dimension here. Something somehow distinct from thought is energizing this thought. Something is, is compelling this thought. Could it be lust? Could be. Lust is certainly asso associated with the imagination. I think that's the same idea, in fact, in James chapter 1, verse 14. I want to see how this plays out. I think this will certainly help us to 
discern this verse. Listen to these words. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own what? Lust. Then, when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. You see that progression? There's something else in you besides this thought. I think it's lust. And it works in your imagination. And what happens when every imagination of the thoughts of the heart are only evil continually? He is carried away and enticed, James says, by his own lust. And when lust has conceived in your imagination, it gives birth to sin. It's evil moves the sinful will of man to then act out his imagination. And when sin is accomplished, James says, it brings forth death. The flesh controls the imagination of the unredeemed. And if not kept in check, beloved, by constantly taking those thoughts captive and making them obedient to Christ, can also affect the believer's imagination. Paul closes out that great chapter in Romans 13, 14, saying, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. He says before this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake up from your sleep for salvation is nearer to us now than we, when we first believed. The night is gone, the day is at hand. So then cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light and let us walk properly. The sinful imagination consists primarily of lies and distortions of truth of oneself and of others. Beloved, we have been redeemed, redeemed, purchased from this evil and, and lustful imagination. And we must guard our minds against it. Proverbs 4 verse 23 says, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Wise wisdom. Jesus said similarly in Luke 21, Be on guard so that your heart will not be weighed down with drunkenness and the worries of life, and that day will not come upon you suddenly like a trap. Now, there's a uh, second word Peter gives us in that same section of verse 14 that also expresses something of the nature of our bondage. It says, not only do not be conformed to the former lusts, but then which were yours in your ignorance. There's a second word which defines the bondage of the unredeemed. They are not only bound by lust, they are bound by ignorance. Now what kind of ignorance does Peter mean or have in mind here? Let's look at a few scriptures on which to build an answer to that question. You'll remember back in John chapter 17, Jesus said this in the high priestly prayer, O righteous Father, Although the world has not known you, yet I have known you. There lies the bondage of the unredeemed, 
they do not know God. The ignorance Peter is referring to is the absence of spiritual understanding. They are ignorant of God. You'll remember, that's why in John chapter 8, when Jesus confronts the religious leaders of Israel, apostate Judaism, Jesus says, why do you not understand what I am saying? How many times did we see this confrontation? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. Verse 47, he who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason, you do not hear them because you are not of God. You do not know God, and therefore you do not comprehend the word of God. You do not recognize God if he's standing right in front of you. How blind must you be? You don't recognize his voice. You don't know God. A dangerous, dangerous place to be. This was all of us. This was all of us. We all at one time heard the word of God and thought it was foolishness. Beloved, this is why salvation isn't some prayer or something that you're going to, to do. We need a supernatural spiritual work of God to come in and penetrate and purchase and redeem us. To open deaf ears, to, to open blind eyes. Only God can do that. In Romans 1 and verse 28, Paul said, speaking of the unredeemed, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. They do not acknowledge God. They do not know God. They do not know his word. They do not even acknowledge that he exists. And that can go for, for a long time. For me, it went on for over 35 years. For others, it might be 80 years, right up into their deathbed. But at some point, beloved, God's graciousness can, hear me, can run out. And when that happens, God will give them over to a depraved mind to do things which were not proper. The things that are not proper are all the things that we see playing out here right now. He created us to be children of obedience, a child of God, but what we see playing out right now in our American culture is total ignorance. It's literally the definition of insanity. On soundness of mind and the lack of ability to understand. A mind that does not know God, that will not know God, has deadly, eternal consequences. Paul gives us a good summary verse here in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14. But a natural man, that is the unregenerated man or woman, that's who we all once were, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually abrased. He cannot understand them. He cannot know them 
because he cannot comprehend that which is spiritual. He is ignorant of God. He is ignorant of God's word. He's ignorant of God's truth. Possibly the best summary of our former ignorance, not knowing God is found in Ephesians 4, verse 18. Being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them. And where did that ignorance come from? Because the hardness of their heart. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul sums it all up for us by saying, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now in, in, at working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desire of the flesh and of the mind. We were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. That was our former state, beloved. We were all born spiritually dead. We walked according to the course of the world, ignorant of God, living in lust, indulging in the desires of the flesh. By nature, we are children of wrath, enslaved to our sins. The natural man cannot discern the things of God. They cannot know God. Their mind is depraved and reprobate. And that is the nature of their bondage. No way out, no way to escape. We cannot will our way out of this. The sinner desperately needs a redeemer. Someone who can free them from this awful slavery. Two more words here that Peter mentions. Notice in verse 18. Knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from the futile way of life. Let's stop right there for a moment. He's mentioned, number one, lust. Number two, ignorance. And here's a third one, futility. Your futile way of life means you're vain, empty, powerless, pointless, valueless, useless way of life. It's a strong word. <laughs> and most of us would push back against this and say, well, you know, wait a minute, I know so-and-so, and, um, you know, they're not saved, but um, he's an excellent friend, and uh, he volunteers at the retirement home, and he works at the local uh, veterans group. Um, he's a real uh, straightforward, uh, straight-shooting, honest kind of a guy. Um, he's, my, he's my best friend um, from an earthly perspective yeah we all know that's true we all know someone like that but peter's talking spiritually here specifically he's talking about salvation he's talking about redemption and at the end of the day there is absolutely only one reason for us to live and that is to bring glory to god and apart from being redeemed and knowing being known by christ you cannot do any good thing that is anything that will give any glory to God. And so by that measure, our former way of life was useless, futile. Heaven is a place where glory will be given to God throughout all of eternity. And if your life does not do that and has no capacity to offer that, then it is pointless. Now, you might say, well, what about all the things I accomplished in this life? <laughs> I'll let Jesus answer that. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? It's 
profitless, it's pointless, it's useless. Back in Romans 1 again, verse 21, speaking here again of the unredeemed man. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God. That is, they, they knew God in the sense that God had revealed himself through his creation. It says in the verse before that, man is without excuse. So they became futile in their speculations. In other words, in their in their worldly knowledge, in their philosophies, uh, were useless. Their religions, useless. Their idols, useless. In Romans 6, Paul's talking about our former way of life when we were slaves to sin. And in verse 21, he asks, What benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, I told you last week, we're slaves to God. You derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. Death to life. Slave to sin, enslaved to God. This is what the old self was enslaved to, nothing but empty, useless, fertility, it lacks reverence for God, has no capacity to glorify God. Therefore, it is useless and the outcome is eternal death. We must be redeemed. We must be redeemed. Here is the last one Peter lists, and it ties into what he has already said at the end of verse 18. Knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life, and then notice this phrase he yeah, has inherited from your forefathers. This is another piece of our bondage. Let's call it traditions. Your traditions. People become enslaved through their inherited traditions from their forefathers. And what Peter is directing our attention to would be something consistent with the culture in which he's writing into. Um, and so he's probably regarding this idea to the traditions to both the Jews and to the Gentiles. Um, but let's just focus for a minute on the Jew here. Um, we're going to be focusing a lot on the Gentile as we go through this letter. But for the Jew, the feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers certainly could be a reference to apostate uh, Judaism, religion, that kind of Judaism that knew not God, that was characteristic of an apostate Pharisee. Jesus said of them in Matthew 15, verse 9, In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments or traditions of men. How many times does Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount, You have heard it said, but I say unto you. And every time he says, You have heard it said, he's saying, That's the, the tradition of your rabbinical teaching. And this guy said this, and this guy came up with that. I'm telling you, this is the word of God. But they were trapped and blinded by their own traditions. In Matthew 23, verse 4, Jesus says of the Pharisees, They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. The blind leading the blind. It says, let the dead bury the dead. Let the blind just walk into the pit. Our 
bondage to sin goes so much deeper than just the surface sins that we can see, say, with others. The unredeemed is driven by lust, ignorant of God, bound by false religions and theories and ideas and philosophies. There is no part of him that is fit for any communion or union with God. Scripture says his tongue is deceitful, his lips are poisonous, his throat is an open grave, his eyes are full of adultery, his ears are deaf to the voice of the truth, his hands do evil, his feet run to shed blood, his mind is depraved, his heart is desperately wicked, his will is hard and unrepentant, he resists God, he refuses life, his conscience is evil, in and out he is polluted. Man is desperate for redemption. What will redeem him? Nor silver or gold can we be redeemed, but with the precious blood. The precious blood as of a lamb, unblenished and spotless, the blood of Christ. The precious blood of Christ. Not just any blood. What kind of blood? Precious blood. Precious blood. What does it mean? Precious blood. Unblemished and spotless. Perfect. Beautiful. God. The lamb had to be the sacrifice. And that was a great sacrifice, a glorious sacrifice. Not only the sacrifice upon the lamb, but the sacrifice on part of the shepherd. He had to offer in the Exodus the purest, most unblemished, thoroughbred lamb, if you will. That is why he was so valued and treasured and precious and is the picture that looks ahead to Christ. And so Peter says, look at the precious price, the precious blood of this lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world who was it? Christ. The blood of Christ. Was it precious? It was the most unblemished. It was the most spotless. It was the perfect one who ever lived. It was the one who had to come. He is the one who purchased our redemption by death. And this week as we go about our life and rub shoulders in the world, if you in fact have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, when we talk about how is it that I want to walk and live to be holy, we turn our hearts every morning when we awake and bless God and praise God for that precious blood. What the cost was to cover my filthy, 
wretched rebellion of sins. And he stepped in and took my debt. He was the substitute for my penalty. He ransomed and purchased my soul. It was the righteous for the unrighteous, the just for the unjust. There was nothing I could do. Jesus stepped in. The precious blood of the Lamb. I pray that you meditate on that this week as we get ready to go into the verses next Sunday. I want to invite you to please stand as we worship our God and remember the precious blood sacrificed by Jesus Christ. Thank you.